We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly interview show where top chess players, authors, content creators, and accomplished amateurs discuss their careers and share stories and chess improvement tips. Perpetual Chess is a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and we'd like to give a special thanks to our presenting chess education sponsor, Chessable.com. For more information about the show, you can go to perpetualchesspod.com. But without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We are joined this week by a documentary filmmaker and author by the name of Howard Burton. He holds a PhD in theoretical physics and an MA in philosophy. He's the founder of the award-winning multimedia initiative, The Ideas Roadshow. Uh, what that means is that they have a new documentary called Through the Mirror of Chess, a cultural exploration. It's actually a four-part documentary that is widely available uh, for an inexpensive price to rent. Um, and he has also written a relatively new book called Chess Ace, Travels Through the World of Chess. They are very different projects in terms of uh, how they are presented, but I enjoyed them both. And I'm excited to welcome to the show, Dr. Howard Burton. Hi, Ben. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, happy to have you. Um, so you've written so first of all, for listeners interested, I would just give my perspective. The documentary takes a historical walk through chess and its cultural impact, uh, dating all the way back to its beginnings, compares it to other games. I would say plays it very straight, but greatly enjoyable. And for chess fans, as we all are, there's a lot of familiar faces. Uh, uh, Danny Wrench from Chess.com, Elizabeth Spiegel, um, Hu Yi Fan, uh, many, many more um, talking about chess and their lives and the role that chess plays in the world. Um, and then the, in the book, Howard actually shoots from the hip and explains his opinions about the chess world. A lot of um, questions that come up occasionally on the podcast about contextualizing chess. Um, now, Howard, I know you say in the introduction to the book that um, you decided intentionally to um, write your opinions in the book, share your thoughts on the chess world and uh, to be sort of a little more even-handed, I guess, or I don't know if that's the right word, but um, to present things more holistically um, in the documentary. I know you've done a lot of other projects in other fields, uh, quite knowledgeable about many other fields. Um, is that something you've done in your other projects as well? Um, 
In the previous project, it, it was, uh, insofar as I did a film about the pandemic, and then I wrote essays uh, about my, my personal views. It, it's not something I plan on doing all the time. And in fact, I certainly didn't plan on doing it with the chess project. And, uh, but as you, as you said, I, I explained in the introduction to the book that my original idea was to do a really comprehensive it turned out to be much more comprehensive than I had imagined, but uh, a very comprehensive look at the widespread cultural impact in all sorts of areas, uh, past, present, and, and even potentially future implications of chess throughout the world. Um, and doing that meant that I did plunge into the chess world. And as you mentioned, talked to many people, had interactions with a great many people, did a great deal of research and background reading and so forth. And through that, I started to get all sorts of personal opinions. And my own belief and orientation is that for the films that I like to make, uh, I don't have a sort of a hammer, Michael Moore type of this is what I believe, or this is what you, this is my big thesis, or this is what you have to do. Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that. It's just not the sort of thing that I like to do via films. Um, but books are another matter. So I started getting lots of opinions and I thought, that a good way perhaps to move forwards would be to write them down and put them in book form and put them out there explicitly as my own opinions as opposed to uh, the, the, the documentary project and have them both come out as a pair. So I guess the, the short answer to that question is, yes, I've done that before. I don't plan on doing that in the future. But then again, I didn't plan on doing that with this project either. Okay, and to give listeners a, a bit more context, the the main themes of the chapters in the book are one are about the first chapter is about chess history and historians. Another is the timeless question of is chess a waste of time. Um, number three, how chess is perceived in the world and whether it should be a sport. Number four, Fide, good chapter, enjoyed that one. Uh, number five, uh, the question of uh, gender and sexism in chess, or I guess it's not a question; it's a, a fact. Um, and number six um, and seven and eight are all about different ways that chess skills uh, could be transferred to uh, other domains or could not be transferred um, to other domains. So to, to go sort of big picture before we zoom into any particular topic, Howard, let me ask you, because you do, you there are some things you love about chess and other things that, that frustrate you clearly. Um, if you could change one thing about the chess world, what would you change? Only one, though. Okay, I'll get right before I get to that. Let me just say one more parenthetic comment about this. I I believe quite strongly that it's useful for people within any community to sometimes hear from people who make an effort to really understand that community, but are on the outside. Oh, and all strongly too often yeah. in our in our worlds, and I think this is probably happening more now than ever before, people are in their own bubbles, whatever the community is. And that's natural and it's normal and there's nothing wrong with that. But it, it can be really uh, salutary, I think, to hear from somebody, not somebody who's just you know opinionated or biased in one particular direction, but who really objectively approaches the situation and tries to... Um, and tries to get a sense of what really happened, what is really happening, what's going on, but brings really an objective outsider's view. And I think that can be really meritorious. So I, I do believe that, uh, and I think it's worth listening and reading people of that particular persuasion, independent of whether you're going to agree with everything they said. And as we said before the show, it, it's highly uh, unlikely. I mean, I, I can't remember the last time I agreed with everything anybody said. So you don't, you know, you, you shouldn't necessarily expect that. Anyway, so the end of parenthetic remark. Now I'm going to try to address your question. What would I change if there was one thing? Well, the, the obvious thing that just, just completely leaps out at me is that I think FIDE should be completely dismantled. Uh, I think it should be, uh, I don't, I think it should be dismantled, not just because the guy in charge is X or Y, or we should have somebody else in charge, although I, I think as it happens, there's a lot of merit there too. But I, I, I think it should be approached with the idea of what is the point of this in 2023? What should the point of this particular body be? And to address that, I also think it's important to look at the history, which is why in my 
uh, in the chapter about FIDE, I don't just say, oh, there was this egregious act over here and that egregious act over there. I go right back to the beginning and say, what were the original intentions? Uh, to what extent has it lived up to that? What have been the transgressions and so forth and so on? But anyway, that's, that, that, that's a very long-winded answer. The short answer is I would completely dismantle FIDE, which I think is not only anachronistic, I think it's deeply deleterious to the interests of chess, uh, both at the professional level and also just in terms of its presence worldwide. I made a four-part documentary about chess that's four hours long, talked about huge numbers of different things, of different cultural aspects of the past and different eras, the present. I didn't mention FIDE once. I didn't have to. They are supremely irrelevant and only, in my view, deleterious to the future of the game. Okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think the professional game in particular, as you allude to, like, as you say, it doesn't, you know, in terms of uh, the efficacy of chess as a learning tool or something like that, uh, FIDE has, um, the, you know, they, they might try to present it as a, uh, a great learning tool but other than that they don't they're not really impacting that world so Howard when you research its origins uh, what did you come across as the original mission of FIDE? Well FIDE started in the 20s it was I think in many ways within the spirit of the uh, the modern Olympic movement uh, a little bit afterwards but you know Pierre de Coubertin's vision of uh, the, this idea of uh, harmony of nations and, and sport as a means of uh, fostering understanding and, and, and this sort of thing. But it started with this, uh, I think uh, it, there were a series of uh, professional tournaments that, that, uh, that came out in the, the early part of the 20th century, where it was understood that there was a bit of a problem with uh, on the one hand, there was a bit of a problem with the world championships uh, because they, they needed some kind of uh, organizational structure. There was an understanding of that. Because don't forget, this was a legacy of the 19th century when they started, when uh, a lot of these things were done, sort of backroom deals with guys sitting around a table and top hats and wagering and so forth and so on. Um, and there was an understanding that it would be useful to have some structure. And then I mentioned Pierre de Coubertin and the Olympic movement because um, uh, a parallel development was this idea of having an Olympics for chess, or in fact, having chess within the Olympics itself. And therein started the notion of, of an Olympiad for chess. And so those were the primary, I think, historical ideas. And in 1924, they weren't particularly bad ideas. And I think the people who were responsible for developing that were well-meaning, decent, reasonable individuals. Uh, and there were you know, hiccups that went uh, here and there, back and forth for a while. Um, it, it, you know, FIDE tried to, even in the early days, tried to impose its presence during the Alakine Capablanca World Championships. It turned out they were largely ignored by Alakine and Capablanca, who did something else. But then eventually, uh, after Alakine's demise, after World War II, when the Soviet Union joined FIDE, I believe in, in 47, um, it started to become, get a, a real, say, iron grip on things. And it was always, from that point onwards, wedded politically, particularly strongly, to uh, then the Soviet Union. And, and we can go on and on and on and talk about this, but uh, that's, that's my understanding of the history. And again, it's not just you know, Howard saying this, this is pretty well-documented stuff. Yeah, agreed. And if we push forward to today, obviously, the Soviet influence has um, transferred to being Russian influence, but that's something that, that persists to this day. Obviously, someone like Grandmaster Peter Hein Nielsen uh, has been quite vocal about this. Um, uh, if you follow his Twitter interactions or hear him on the Chicken Chess Club, and of course, that's a uh, part of the driving force for why uh, Andrei Barish Politsyn, he um, ran against um, uh, Dvorkovich uh, in the most recent election, and there's any sort of outsider candidate, including Kasparov, has generally had trouble um, defeating the the machine for whatever reasons. Um, but if you were to start from scratch, what do you think the primary role of a chess governing body should be in a perfect world? Well, I'm pretty explicit about this. Um, 
in that fourth essay that you referred to. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I've thought about this, so I have my views. Um, so that's an easy one for me to answer. Uh, I, uh, it, the first thing I should say is it's embedded within a context that at the professional levels, I mean, you mentioned the ambassadorial role, the education role of chess uh, worldwide and FIDA's participation in that. I think they do that terribly as well, by the way, in terms of education <laughs> and so forth. So we can talk about that. I don't think they do that particularly well. Um, but let's stick to the professional level. And I think that's, that's within the context of chess as a sport, as a top flight sport. And I think that already is changing. And I think that's the first thing to say. And I think it's changing uh, just due to technology and corporate influence and the fact that there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of money and there, and, and there are opportunities to do that. I think uh, the, when you look at the major players like the chess.coms of the world and like uh, the, the online tournaments and so forth, things are already moving in a development uh, very significant development that is moving away from being FIDE dominated. And I think that's a very, very good thing. But to answer your question very concretely, I don't think FIDE, I think the world championships, and the, here is where I just, you know, every, everybody who I talk to who's a chess player vigorously disagrees with me about it seems, maybe there are some, but I haven't met any. Uh, I think the world championships are an anachronism. I think the fact that Magnus Carlsen decided not to defend his title is a very good thing. I think that chess should look at other sports because it is a sport, certainly at that level, and see how they run things. I point specifically, but not exclusively, to the world of professional tennis. I think uh, chess should have its equivalent of an ATP and for the women, especially a WTA, where they, where they look at the interests of the players themselves and they ensure that the product that they are packaging and engaging with the public, because after all, that's the whole point of the venture, is high level, is quality, is accessible. And, and I think uh, that development should definitely occur and it shouldn't have anything to do with an international governing organization. It should be up to, like I say, the analogy of the ATP or the WTA. I think there is a role for a governing body to assist with uh, things like part of the functions that FIDE does, training arbiters, uh, I think protecting the rules, being involved in uh, overseeing uh, the threat, threats posed by cheating and so forth and so on. And also with the idea of social empowerment and using chess as a vehicle to, uh, to assist people and as a, as, as a vehicle to promote the wonderful activity that chess is worldwide. I think there's a tremendous role for an international governing body to be able to do that, but one that shouldn't be held to this way of dark dictatorial forces that are, are you know, have a, a decades long egregious human rights record of being associated with regimes that are, you know, murdering journalists and dissidents, let alone invading countries. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't object to that. Now, let me ask you, Howard. So chess, as you mentioned, it, it's generally on a good trajectory. The uh, interest is growing. Uh, viewership is growing. Um, the websites are booming. Um, but the World Chess Championship, as Levy Rosman is always quick to point out, the, the prize fund in that particular domain, now maybe it's because of what you allude to, um, maybe the, the whole format is stale, although as you say, a lot of chess players disagree with that. But that prize fund is stagnant. And then when it does materialize, uh, it tends to be um, rather um, unclear sources. Um, after a lot of delay, um, it was announced that the World Championship, which is coming right up, I mean, April, um, from April 7th to May 1st, is going to be in Astana, Kazakhstan. And it's one of these where, um, you know, their human rights record isn't great. And uh, I'm curious, Howard, if, if FIDE didn't exist and an entity were trying to or organize a world championship, do you think that there would be greater corporate interest and in that it could be done on a bigger scale? I think everything would be better if FIDE didn't exist, uh, quite frankly. So yes, is the answer to that question. Uh, but let me, let me hit it from a different angle. I think that 
a major reason why FIDE has the power that it has is because of the world championships, because that's one aspect of their mandate. That's one of the reasons why they say, look, we need to exist. We need to exist because we're the guys that put on the world championship, and we need to exist because we're the guys who put on the Olympiads. That's, that's uh, uh, at the professional level or at the high level, that's, that's their, their sort of defense or claim to fame or what have you. Um, so I think that the international chess body is, the, 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 the international world of chess players is actually very naive and not recognizing that it is through the fact that FIDE is telling you the world championships is the most important thing in the world that, that they can defend their right to exist. That's a large part of it. So that's one aspect. You allude to the fact that, uh, that the, the world championships are, 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 are just announced in Kazakhstan, that it's somewhat random, that no one's sure where the money's going to come from and so forth. And I would reply, that's the same with every world championship I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. It's clearly always done with backroom deals. It's done in a way which is not transparent. You never know where it's coming from. You never know where it's going to be. It goes to the high, highest bidder through some back of the you know, table or under the table type of scheme. And that's very typical of the regime that you're looking at. So again, if you want to hurt these guys, if you want change, if you also do not want to be an international laughing stock for people who don't know anything about chess, and the first thing they're going to do is find out, okay, well, what does your international governing body look like? And then they take a look at the people who have been associated with that and what they have done and how they have behaved. It's deplorable. You're a laughing stock. So you might want to actually take that into consideration. Um, I think transparency, uh, transparency at all levels, transparency in the money that's involved and so forth, transparency in the way it's set up, transparency in the structure, and also give some thought to the players themselves and what they want and give some things to the fans. One of the points that I make that, again, I'm sure a lot of people would disagree with me about, but I'm on your show, so as long as I'm on your show, I'm going to make the <laughs> point. Um, I don't think if you're looking at it from the perspective of how can we have the best possible chess games, the World Championships does a wonderful service to chess. And I said, look at it from Magnus Carlsen's perspective. He just went through a period where he, he played against Jan Nepomuchi. He had to prepare for, I don't know what it is, three months of his life he had to dedicate to this particular event. Uh, he went through, he had a, a, a typically a very strong positive result at the end of the day and was able to defend his title. And now you're telling him that he has to go through 16 months later or whatever it is, the same situation again. He has to do it all over again. Why? Would you do that if you were him? If you were obviously the best player in the world, if you were somebody who had this remarkable record of achievement... What's in it for him to be able to do that, to be going through such an incredibly arduous preparatory uh, uh, tradition just because it happens to resonate with some 19th, you know, mid-19th century standard? doesn't make any sense. That's um, certainly and, the conclusion and, he came to. Well, but it makes, you know, so I don't know, and I'm not pretending to know, and I'm not pretending that I have any window into Magnus Carlsen's world, but it makes sense to me. If I was mm -hmm. in that situation, I would do that as well. And then again, look at it from the fans' perspective. One of the things that I mention in the book is, look, a, an essential ingredient to being a modern sport is the level of expectations from the fans. You want to know what's coming. You want to know when the tournaments are. If I follow tennis, I know the Australian Open happens in January. I know the U.S. Open happens in September. I know Wimbledon happens at whatever it is, early July. I know Roland Garros happens in May. I know when these things happen. I know how they work. I know, that, I know how the seeding works because, of, uh, because it works according to the rankings. I know how the rankings work in terms of the points that people are getting. As a fan, I can participate. And most sports are like that. If I'm you know, in the NBA, if I follow the NBA rather, I, I, I know the rules, I know the schedule, I know all the rest of that kind of thing. Or if I follow Champions League football, whatever it is. Uh, chess is very much in, the, in this sort of haphazard, again, 19th century, under the table type of tradition as a fan. That may have worked very well in the 19th century, or maybe it didn't, but it is not well suited to the modern 
sporting culture that it now is a leading member of and is uniquely poised to be a particularly strong member of. Because so far I've talked about all the negatives, but chess has an enormous number of positives. It's incredibly global. Technology makes it incredibly accessible. The people who are involved in it are, are wonderfully knowledgeable. They do a fantastic job. It's accessible to people all over the place. It's growing. The, 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 the tools to engage are fantastic and getting better all the time. The barrier to entry is virtually zero. It's incredibly international. I mean, it, it's, it's got so many strengths and it's poised at so many levels to be able to to accelerate and develop an even greater presence than it has. But the current organizational structure is strongly limiting it in its ability to do just that. Well said. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I broadly agree. And you, you were quite poetic in discussing the, the benefits of chess, which we shouldn't uh, gloss over, although we also shouldn't overstate as you, <laughs> as you discuss in, in your book. Um, well, Howard, I think we'll leave it there on the FIDE discussion. I mean, it has been, I, I really appreciate your perspective. And I, I do, from my perspective, the insider's perspective, of course, I, I, I'm, again, sympathetic to the views and do feel like, for at least in my life, I've, I feel like people are mostly rowing in the same direction and we're making real progress. But, um, but I do agree with you that, um, that FIDE gets in the way sometimes. And, uh, I, I think, uh, the, the world championship, I, I, I understand there's a lot of people, Howard, as you, you alluded to that, that love the format that grew up watching it. But I do think that it's a telltale sign that, uh, our, you know, flaws notwithstanding the greatest ambassador for the game is, is Magnus Carlsen. And if, if it's, if the way it's structured doesn't interest him, uh, that's something, in my opinion, people need to listen to, and they really they don't have a choice. Really, I mean, we'll see how interested people are in this upcoming World Championship. But as I've mentioned before, I mean, I'll be covering it on the podcast and stuff. Um, I think it's a, from a chess perspective. I think it's a very fascinating matchup. But as I've said to, before, it's just not going to feel the same to me. And to me, that's sort of a bellwether. Um, all, right, all right, anything to add on FIDE before we take a break, Howard? Well. I think I've, just, I've set it up. I could go on forever, but uh, mm -hmm. but I think I've probably said enough. Okay, so we'll be right back. And next up, I'm going to ask Howard about someone he loves, Paul Morphy. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by AimChess.com. AimChess has an algorithm that gathers your games from the major chess playing sites like Chess.com and Lee Chess, and then gives you actionable intel on how to improve your game. It evaluates different phases of the game, tells you how you're doing with certain openings, and they're constantly rolling out new features to make Aim Chess even better. Some of the new ones include a blunder preventer drill that you can do, and they've now got blindfold exercises where you can work on your chess visualization skills. So be sure to check out Aim Chess if you have not already. And if you decide to subscribe, then use the code PERPETUAL30 to save 30%. You can also click on the link in the show description to aimchess.com. And we are back. And one thing that struck me from Howard's book, and by the way, we should say this has been a very impassioned conversation. I really appreciate hearing Howard's views, but this is very different than the documentary. The documentary is just sort of a pleasant stroll through uh, chess history. The book is, uh, is a much different thing, and I, there's a great place for both of them, but that may give you some perspective. Um, but from the book, Howard, one thing that struck me is I think this side of Ben Feingold, you may be the biggest uh, Paul Morphy lover I have come across. <laughs> So what is it about Paul Morphy that so captivates you? Well, the, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I th there are lots of people in the chess world who, who I think are really, really interesting and impressive people. In fact, almost all of them in their own way are, are impressive people. Morphy strikes me as singular insofar as uh, I think you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a famous quote that Andy Soltis has uh, when people talk about genius, and he says, genius is a starry word, but if it applies to anyone, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I'm not going to get this completely right, but if it applies to anyone in chess, it applies to Paul Morphy. And I think that's completely right. One of the things that's so remarkable about Morphy is, uh, is that unlike just about everybody who has achieved dominance in chess, completely understandably, who's 
who's committed so much time and effort to doing so um, at the expense often of, of other things in their lives, because that's what it means to be dedicated and spend all your time doing something, Morphe somehow managed to do all sorts of other things simultaneously. I mean, he wasn't monomaniacally interested in chess. He was, he was unbelievably good at chess and so much better than everybody else at the time. But he, was, he also had a large number of other interests. And, and so I think that's noteworthy. I wouldn't say that I am, like I have posters of Paul Morphy up in my bedroom or something like that. It's, it's, not, it's not like that. It's that I think he's remarkable. He stands out from almost everybody else uh, because he was a phenomenally uh, able and beautiful chess player for his day. He was remarkably well-rounded. And by all accounts, he was also incredibly civil and decent and likable, which is also non-trivial and worth pointing out. Almost everybody that encountered the man said he was very polite, he was very respectful, he wasn't an egomaniac, he was very considerate and all the rest of that. So I think that's deserving of, of uh, being highlighted. So it's, it's really that, in that spirit, uh, there, there's a, maybe perhaps you're alluding to the fact that I compare Fisher with Morphy because a lot of people have compared Fisher with Morphy and there's a, uh, there are some similarities there and there are differences. And I think that often the way that things are presented with respect to Morphy make him have the short end of the stick. And I don't think his accomplishments are as appreciated as they should be. For example, there's this whole, you know, Morphy, Morphy went crazy. So Morphy did have you know, psychotic psychological incidents, but I think often not nearly, not nearly as well documented as to the extent that people say that they are uh, were rather. I think there are even quite a few chess people who go to the extent of saying the reason why Morphy had psychological issues was because he stopped playing chess, which I think uh, the record clearly. There's not much of a record, but if you actually read the record, which primarily consists of one book, you'll find that that's not at all the case. So uh, anyway, those are my thoughts about Paul Morphe. I don't want to go on and on and on about it because it makes it seem like, like I'm lying and I actually am obsessive about Paul Morphe, but I'm not. But I'm trying to answer your question as best as I can. Okay. And the one book is The, the Pride and Sorrow of, of exactly. Chess? Or? Okay. And would you recommend that book? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, that was it was helpful it was essential to know what was going on particularly because it's it's the primary source okay yeah i actually haven't read it so when i was uh, i that was one of the things that struck me in reading it is that you were so strongly opinionated and i honestly even being a big chess fan and being obviously very familiar with his his chess legacy uh didn't know that much about his personality and such so um i will be uh be glad to uh to check it out. And you said he's the only player who's a genius equivalent to Gauss or Mozart. What what framed that perspective? Just how far ahead of his peers he was? Well, I think it was more the effortlessness, the seemingly effortlessness nature of it. Um, and, and this gets back to what I said before. I mean, again, I, I throw these things out there. I'm not pretending to say this in an authoritarian way. I, I'm not a, you know, psychologist, let alone a history of psychology. But when you look at people... I mean, I guess it's a riff on the whole idea of genius because I have issues, as you've seen in the documentary, with the idea of genius. And I think very all too often genius is misattributed at the peril of chess itself to chess and chess players. So uh, I'm, I, I think it's particularly unique and one has to pay attention to, uh, to what it is actually to be a genius. But when you look at Morphe's record, he was able to... Uh, to, to basically annihilate everyone around him. And nowadays there's this idea of, yeah, well, they were all losers anyway, they couldn't play. But that's, uh, that's obviously a, a, an absurd way to look at, uh, at the situation and demeaning and, and belittling to, to past players. Um, that combined with the fact that he also had so many other interests, I think puts him in a different league. And so when you look at someone like Gauss, who famously was able to come up with these, these uh, beautiful, interesting mathematical ideas when he was a small child, uh, similar to Mozart with music when he was a small child, you, that, there to me are the parallels, as opposed to people who have worked incredibly hard at accomplishing uh, uh, domain expertise in their particular domains, which doesn't in any way take away from their, their wondrous ability or, or what have you, but it's, it's just different, it seems to me.
Okay. Yeah. And it was only in reviewing his Wikipedia page last night. I didn't realize he, the opera game he played when he was 21. I, I had thought he was obviously these days that, you know, there's a million prodigies and every 14 year old grandmaster uh, could theoretically play a game like that. But at that time, as Ben Feingold in one of our news interviews talked about, I mean, this is someone who is self-taught and no one is challenging him. So to be that far ahead of his peers, and I didn't realize that he was that young, which again, we're talking about a different age. So 21 sounds like nothing now, but at that time to to play a game um, of that beauty, um, it, it it surprised me he was, he was only 21 at the time. Well, um, it, was, it all happened very quickly. Like it all happened in the late 1850s, basically. He, he won, I think it was 1857, the first American chess conference, and he went to Europe in 1858. And by 1859, he was basically back. And then, uh, you know, unfortunately and tragically for him, the Civil War broke out and you know, shortly thereafter. So, uh, so it, it was all very, very condensed. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And you, you do compare it to Fisher um, and... Chess-wise, that's that's one conversation. But w- one thing that I noticed about the book was like I felt like you were alluding to a lot of defenders of of Fisher, and I know Fisher has like a lot of fanboys, especially when it comes to his chess. But I haven't encountered that many people who who defend his actions or think of him as a role model. Is that something that you've encountered much in sort of chess discourse? No, I wouldn't say so. I think I mean, look, it's obvious that. Fisher was a titanic chess player and played some of the most beautiful games imaginable uh, and influenced everybody who cares about chess on the chessboard. I mean, that's just a fact, right? Uh, uh, so uh, I'm in no way trying to diminish that or belittle that or, or it's not my place, obviously, who am I to do such a thing, but I'm not trying to do it anyway. So uh, I think I, I, I didn't feel that. Uh, but I think one thing that perhaps along the lines of what you're alluding to needs to be pointed out is that I point out several times during the book that chess, like a lot of things, but chess in particular, is prey to a very strong hierarchical culture. And, and that's perhaps understandable. I mean, most sports are. You try saying something nasty about you know, Roger Federer or, or Lidl Messi or something like that, you're going to get an awful lot of people getting extremely angry with you. Um, but I think that when it comes to, when it comes to chess, uh, very often people have difficulty in disassociating the brilliant player, the inspirational player, the, 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 the wonderful games, from the individual, from the person. And I think this ripples in all sorts of different directions. It certainly ripples on the gender front. Uh, And I point out the fact that when you have people like uh, both Fisher and Kasparov, who are on record as saying militantly anti-women statements, this has an effect on the community. When the heroes, the role models of this world say things that are you know, if not borderline, actually down and out misogynistic, that's going to have serious effects on the culture. And it's going to have particularly serious effects on a culture which is hierarchical and where role models, like it or not, subconsciously or otherwise, play such a strong role. Well said. And uh, of course, we're recording this um, on, I never know the date, on February 16th, uh, 2023. And uh, my friend Jen Shahadi just issued a statement yesterday um, alluding to uh, that she had been a victim of assault from Grandmaster Alejandro Ramirez and that uh, some young women, and in one case a girl, had independently come to her with allegations of um, impropriety. Um, And there's ongoing investigations. Um, There's there's not much more I personally can say other than that I'm, I believe women generally uh, in these matters. Um, but uh, there, there, could, there could be more change coming. Uh, and as you say, Howard, it's, it's long overdue. Yeah. I mean, I, I talk about gender affair. It's, it's actually one of the few things that, that is both in the film and in the book. Uh, and, and there's a, 
are in the films. I, good goodness, I should know that there are four of them. Uh, <laughs> there are four films, by the way. Um, so in the, in, the, in the final film, um, and the films do have a little bit of, obviously the way that they're framed is framed in such a way that it, it, it could not be bereft of my opinions or my thoughts or anything like that since I was the one who created them. But I try very hard to, as you rightly said, uh, tell a picture because I think the picture is a fascinating one, not just the picture of the story and it came, you know, Chaturanga and so forth and so on, which I think is interesting in its own right. I talk quite a lot about popular misconceptions about chess in the first film and, and this idea of Hollywood chess and how they get it wrong. And I think there are some really interesting questions there about why, why that's the case. Um, I talk about the uniqueness of, of chess itself. Um, but then after we do our, our long historical march, the final film is really handed over to the cultural role that chess plays in the present day. And that is naturally the time to really turn one's attention to the, the top players or the people who were involved at the coaching level or the people who were involved in terms of social empowerment or the people who are uh, grandmasters who have uh, their, their own opinions about where the sport is going and what's happening, the community, people like Danny Ranch, as you mentioned, people like Theo Waite from Lee Chess and so forth to actually talk about the, 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 the wonderful, it really is a wonderful community. I mean, you chess guys, uh, so, you know, I say a lot of negative things, or at least I say some negative things. I also say a lot of positive things. I mean, the chess community is one of the most outstandingly inspirational communities I have ever seen, full stop. And the potential for chess to do good in the world is just, it's, it's inspiring. It's remarkable. I've never seen anything like it. And I certainly had no appreciation or awareness of it, or certainly the extent of it until I embarked upon this project. It is something that needs a lot more attention paid to it. It is something that is uh, uh, magnificent in its transformative potential. And that's all the more reason, just cycling back to what I said before about FIDE, that I get angry. Because the potential for just to be able to, to, to make the world a better place, uh, to, to be a bit cliche, is just remarkable. And it's, it's being scotched. It's not being able to achieve that, that potential. Anyway, what I wanted to say as I'm rambling, sorry about that, I do that, is the gender thing, right? So the, when I turn my attention to looking at what people are saying, there's a section on chess as a mirror of contemporary values, and I highlight various female chess players. I highlight Elizabeth Pates, I highlight Jovanka Hauska, I highlight uh, Irene Sukander, uh, I highlight Hu Yifan. There, there's even act, actually uh, uh, somebody who was the under-13, Jenny Yan, uh, Shang-Chi uh, world champion. And these are all women who are talking about uh, aspects of their experiences because I think it's really important for people to hear that firsthand from the women themselves, what they were going through, what they had to face. I'm not talking about something as horrific as you alluded to, Jen Shahad, about uh, abuse or anything like that. Um, that's, that's a whole different kettle of fish. I'm talking about just the, the, the sentiments and the experiences of growing up in a, a very male-dominated culture and the innuendos and the insinuations and the frustrations that they have had to deal with. Yeah, and and part four in particular, I, I, I mean, I enjoyed the, all four uh, videos, but part four was my favorite, the, the most contemporary and just amazing interviews. And uh, of course, I'm... Uh, I'm personal friends with Elizabeth Spiegel, but I really thought she she stole the show. <laughs> I really thought she was such a, a strident advocate and articulate advocate for uh, what chess actually does teach kids. And we're setting aside, you know, as you alluded to in the book, any sort of like uh, nebulous data, um, but just the the unique role that it can provide. But um, absolutely, but it. Yeah. Um, well, Howard, we need to take one more break to hear from our sponsors, but I do want to talk more about the, the film when we return. And particularly, I'm always interested in sort of uh, what went into the production in addition to some of the major themes. So uh, we will be right back. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by Chessable.com. Chessable is the leading chess education platform known for its proprietary move trainer technology, which uses space repetition to help you remember stuff. What kind of stuff? Well, 
tactical patterns, opening sequences. It can even help you drill specific end games. And of course, they have a huge library of courses to help you do that. They have courses both from prominent grandmasters like uh, Grandmaster Jordan von Forrest, Magnus Carlsen, Sam Shanklin, and they also have Great material for cl- for club players, from club players. They have stuff for purchase, stuff you can check out for free. So be sure to go to chessable.com and check out what they have that is new. And we are back. And on the topic of the film, Howard, one thing that struck me, I mean, the production is incredible. I mean, just great footage when you walk through the history, um, great images throughout. Um, and then, of course, these interviews, I mean, it uh, some of them obviously are done on computer, but a lot of them seem to be done in person as well. So um, how much traveling did you do for this? And, and how long was this project uh, in the making? Um, so I'll answer the second question first. Uh, I had thought about doing this right before the pandemic hit. So in fact, I had, uh, I'm based in France, as, as you know, and I was going to start off doing some filming I had a place booked in London in March of 2020, and that uh, obviously went by the boards. And then the, the whole thing kind of, wouldn't say disappeared, but certainly I started doing other things as everybody else did <laughs> around the world and life changed, right? Um, and then I, I kind of picked up the thread after the pandemic project. So I really picked it up seriously halfway through last year, maybe the spring, April, May. And by then things had changed a little bit because through the pandemic project, uh, I, I did a lot of remote filming for obvious reasons. So I decided that I would do a lot more remote filming. So virtually all the filming for this project was done remotely. Now there are very different effects depending on the scenario. So for example, uh, there was, uh, there were, sometimes you get really professional quality facilities uh, we didn't talk about the prison bit yet, but there was somebody uh, that I was filming in uh, Cook County Cook County Jail. There were two people, and they had quite good facilities, really good facilities, and a guy there who really knew what he was doing. And so that was that was very easy. I think that that also shows. Um, then there were then there were people who were just using their laptops or whatever it was, and so there was it was really it was really a mixed bag. Um, in terms of the, and then the project itself, it just went, you know, these things evolve, all sorts of things happen. It, 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 as you do more research and as you learn about things, you, um, your interests change, the project changes, you realize you have to spend more effort here and there. That's part of the fun of doing something like this. I hadn't quite expected that to come up with four hours worth of, of films. It wasn't uh, my idea. And in fact, even in the little trailer, I have a little bit of a sort of a joke about this. Is that you wouldn't think that, that there would be enough material for four hours, four different films of, uh, about the cultural impact of chess. But it turns out that there is. It's fascinating. And the reason why I was attracted to the project to begin with is this is a game which has played such a seminal role in so many aspects of human society and human culture in so many different places for such a long period of time. And that's interesting. Uh, that in itself is interesting and, and worthy of exploring further. Yeah, and this is something when I interviewed Oliver Roeder, who wrote the, the great book Seven Games, uh, we, we sort of tried to I mean, this is something he tackles in his book, but like, why, you know, why does chess endure? Um, what's your, your opinion, Howard? Why, why is it so popular all over the world? Um, and do, is it only growing? Well, the first, the, I guess there's several ways to answer that. I mean, the first, the first thing that was really a surprise to me is that there are all sorts of different types of chess. I mean, I didn't know anything about this when I first started. I, I mean, uh, like like a lot of people, I just thought, well, there's chess and chess. And in fact, when I when I when I started all through my life, really, I've always had this chess is so unique, it's so wonderful, it's so different than everything else, and that that sort of stood out in my mind. Why is that? What what makes it so special? And it is, but it isn't. It turns out, on the one hand, there are lots of different 
chess-like games. There's Shogi, there is Shang-Chi, there is Makruk, there is, uh, you know, there's Zhang-Yi, there are lots of chess variants, there are and there have been lots of chess variants and different diversity of chess. That alone is interesting, and I think part of the DNA of chess, because if you, what I stress, which is hardly an original thought, I mean, it's pretty well what everybody says, but it's true nonetheless, um, that what makes chess chess is that you have, unlike every other game, you have these different pieces with different movements and different roles and they have to interact together and they have to be not only interact synergistically, but they have to interact on offense and defense and their values are changing all the time. And it's this that, that really makes the game so special and so different and lends itself to all sorts of different analogies and metaphors and associated with thinking. I talk about, there's a, there's a famous uh, Swiss linguist in the early part of the 20th century, uh, Ferdinand de Saussure, who, who has a whole metaphor about the structure of language and chess and uses chess. And, and it's these key concepts that make chess unique that is instantiated in these metaphors. So I think that alone makes it very different. But then maybe something more interesting for you, I don't know, but, but if you leap forward now and say, okay, well, chess is booming. Everyone's talking about chess. There's another boom and chess is so popular. Chess, normal chess, standard international chess, the game that we all, we all know and love, is becoming so incredibly popular and there's so many opportunities for it to become more popular still because in my estimation, it's the perfect conjunction of a wonderfully sophisticated and you know, uh, beguiling and, 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 and potentially addictive game with so much sophistication, so much artistry, so much beauty, so much history. And at the same time, it lends itself so perfectly to our modern communications culture. It lends itself so perfectly to be able to be played online. As Danny Wrench uh, eloquently said, unlike just about everything else that people do online, playing chess online is exactly the same as playing chess over the board. It's the same thing. It's just a different way of doing it, but you know, it's a different way of interacting. But you're, you're not doing anything differently. You're not thinking differently. You're not, okay, time controls, blah, blah, blah. You can play in, you know, whatever, three seconds. <laughs> whatever your super uber blitz uh, predilection is. But basically, it's the same game. And so you have this ability to leverage harmoniously modern technology in a way to not only be able to enable people to play all over the world who would normally be playing, but you have an opportunity to transmit that to other places in the world. And one of the things that I think is, is perhaps the most inspiring, which is the way I end the whole project on, is the way chess can be used as a means of social empowerment and a level playing field to people in parts of the world where they would ordinarily not have any access to this whatsoever. And again, technology is really playing a role there. I mean, uh, you know, organizations or, or, or platforms like Lee Chess enable people who, who have no money whatsoever to have all the resources and be able to play at the, at the highest possible level and develop without spending anything for absolutely nothing. It's remarkable. I mean, it's really astounding. I, again, I don't think the chess community recognizes what it has at some level. And what it has is, is, is really mind-blowing. Very poetic. And I do, th I think that we're starting to realize it again and starting to, to get the ball rolling downhill, but it really could be only the beginning. And it's, it's nice to hear again from your semi outsider's perspective, uh, that, that you feel that way as well. Um, speaking of your perspective, Howard, um, I know you did an interview on uh, one move at a time, which listeners can find on YouTube with, uh, Dan Lucas, where you talked about your chess background a little bit, but just as sort of a, a brief aside, um, do you play much and do you, do you work on your game much? Uh, did, did a project of this scope allow such a frivolousness? Um, so no, is the short answer. I don't play much. <laughs> I was never, um, I was worried at the very beginning that I would, I would become addicted because I sort of had these little, nothing major, but I had these, these little moments. I talk a little bit at the beginning of the, uh, of the, of the book that there was this sort of brief foray I had where I was an undergraduate cutting classes and going to the chess club at the, the school. And, and, and I sort of, I found out that I was spending, um, 
it, it I turned out to be starting to spend more time in actually uh, working on my chest than, than the stuff that I was cutting classes for. So that struck me as completely absurd. So I, I stopped. Um, but I was never, I did play competitive sports uh, a fair amount, but I was never really, to me, chess was always more puzzles and beauty and, and artistry and that kind of stuff, playing out games for myself. I, I was never really into competitive chess. It was just the beauty of the game. I love to play out other games. I love to do puzzles. I like to do that kind of stuff. So I did a fair amount of that when I was involved in this project, more than I probably should have. Uh, but uh, but no, I'm, I'm, now I'm kind of on to other stuff already. And Howard, one major topic uh, that I also wanted to discuss is what you, what's called the idea of far transfer, basically, and it's come up a bit in our conversation tangentially, but uh, the idea of uh, what can be transferred and what can't be transferred uh, from chess domain knowledge. And this is obviously, I've interviewed a lot of chess educators, uh, so this has come up periodically. I try to be careful, I hope, about sort of uh, promising any firm connection but it's a, tackle, a topic that you tackle head on um, in terms of like, does chess help your math? You know, uh, does it help with spatial recognition? Um, uh, does it help stave off Alzheimer's? Like, uh, and I'm not saying that these things are not true, but Howard, what did your research reveal? Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a, again, it's an interesting question. I think it's something about my mannerism because people somehow often conclude when I start talking about this that I'm you know militantly anti-chess or anti-education or anti-this or anti-that. What drives me crazy is that people make claims without any justification for it. It drives me crazy because I think it does a disservice to not only the thing that they are supposed to be advancing, in this case chess, I think it does a disservice to the whole idea of, uh, of scientific investigation, or just, let's just say rational <laughs> investigation. And it's also deeply ironic. I mean, here are all these people saying chess will help your critical thinking, and they're saying it in a way which is deeply offensive to anybody who has any understanding of critical thinking. So, uh, so those are things that get my goat. So I hear a lot of this sort of stuff, and a lot of these people who are involved, they make claims which can't be substantiated. They make claims where clearly they have a, a deep interest. Uh, they, they say complete and utter nonsense, which isn't defined and so forth and so on. And so I parse that in the book and I take that apart and I try to say, well, what the heck are we talking about here and what can be justified and what can't be justified? And one of the things, and uh, it, it's not, just to be super clear, it's not that I think chess people should be discouraged <laughs> from playing chess. I think that the world would be a much better place if all children in, on planet Earth were exposed to the game of chess. Absolutely, full stop. Uh, I also think the world would be a much better place if all children on the planet were exposed to art, to music, to, to, to science, to culture, to all sorts of things. Um, and, I, and I think that would be a step in the right direction. And I think we're very, very far from that on all of those fronts. Um, but specifically when it comes to, well, what are the advantages of chess outside of chess? The other thing that I find somewhat demeaning is that is that it's almost like people need a justification. I mean, chess is a wonderful thing to be doing. Chess is fantastic, it's stimulating, and it's fun. It's a great activity to be partaking of. You don't need to be saying, play chess because it's gonna help your math scores, or play chess because it's gonna get rid of your acne, or play chess because of, you know, all these types of things. I mean, it's a wonderful thing to be doing full stop. It, 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 it has its own sort of justification built into the fact of, of the game itself. Anyway. One of the things that, that I do think from a pedagogical perspective, and I highlight this in the film and in the book, to cycle back to something you said, is something that Elizabeth Spiegel said. And she is, as you rightly said, a particularly eloquent and powerful advocate for... Uh, so, so Elizabeth was, for, for those people who don't know, she was profiled in, in Brooklyn Castle. And that's how I had heard of her, because I didn't know her otherwise. Um, and she, she's a wonderful advocate for the educational and pedagogical value of chess. And one of the things that she said that I saw on a YouTube clip of hers, which really led me to contact her when she was getting an award somewhere in Texas, I don't remember the details. <laughs> Teacher was of the, the year, the, yeah. Right. Chess okay, educator well, of the year, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But she talked about the benefit, and this really struck with me, she talked about the benefit of losing and the importance um, that, that, that kids, very often kids that wouldn't have, wouldn't be exposed to that, wouldn't have the opportunity to deal with losing and equip themselves with the tools necessary, uh, necessary to surmount that in life. And that's such a valuable skill. And that chess teaches you that. And for many of these kids, um, they wouldn't necessarily be exposed to that. And so when they find themselves in a, in a situation in life where they encounter defeat, they encounter uh, loss, they encounter suffering, they encounter failure, which all of us do, that's part of life, they haven't been equipped with the tools to be able to handle that. And chess is something that can actually provide that. And I found that very moving and very important. And, and that is something that, I, that, I, that struck me, again, just my subjective view of being particularly noteworthy and particularly important about chess. And that's why I highlighted it both in the book as it happens and in the film. Um, and, and I only wish that more people would talk about it. You know, there's this whole crap about teach chess because it's good for your math scores. And so I say, well, you know, if, if you're interested in improving your math scores, do math for God's sake. I mean, the whole thing is just stupid, right? But why don't you look at chess at what chess can uniquely provide. And she points to some things that it can uniquely do. And that's what I draw attention to. Yeah, and, and there are other other potential benefits. It's more just, uh, I know what you're saying in terms of like needing to separate data and anecdotes. Um, but but yeah, Elizabeth uh, was, was uh, quite compelling. And yeah, it was something that resonated. And obviously there are, in sports, uh, people can learn to lose. Um, I believe you mentioned this in the book, but um, but not everyone plays sports. So this is uh, and as Elizabeth said not in the everyone, in, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Not not everyone plays sports. Absolutely. That that's the that's the most important point. But the second point is when you play sports, and I know because I've you know I played almost everybody has. It's not quite the same. You know, even in an individual sport, you can always sort of justify it. Well, you know, I had a sprained ankle or I had a this or I had a that or, or the wind was blowing or there was this or, or whatever. It's not quite the same as, as the sort of naked loss. As I write in the book, if you can handle chest failure, you can handle any failure because there's no, there's nothing out. There's, it's just naked. I wasn't as good as this person that I was playing against. I have to get better. Um, and, and you can't run from it, you can't hide from it, you know, it's, it's, it's right there. And you have to accept it and deal with it in a way that even within a sporting context is, is very, very naked and very different. And I think that makes it special and important pedagogically. Well said, uh, I agree. Um, so as we wrap up, Howard, any other sort of big picture chess topics that, that you would like to, to discuss while I have you here? I guess the one thing that I think about, and I've alluded to this before, but I really think should be stressed, and that's also the way I ended the films, was chess's role, broader role in social empowerment. The, the, the opportunity that chess can give to be able to give dignity and pride uh, and, and a, a genuine sense of accomplishment and belief and people who would not normally have that opportunity. And that was represented, I think, very, very strongly in the words of Tunde Okoya, I'm oh, sorry, Tunde Anakoya of Chess and Slums Africa. It was represented in the words of Pontus Carlson of Business Meets Chess and Kids. It was represented in the words of Russ Makovsky uh, through uh, the gift of chess and all of his initiatives. It was represented in Elshin uh, Moradiabadi's uh, comments about chess as a vehicle for social uh, interaction for, for immigrants, for, to be able to, to be, become part of a society, to be able to integrate into a broader culture, to develop belief in themselves. Um, what strikes me after having done all this work and seen these things is how, again, unique that is. It's very hard for me to point to another activity that has the ability to do those sorts of things that chess can do. And I only wish that more people both within and beyond the chess world would appreciate that because it's a tool. It's a tool that can be used 
very easily. It doesn't cost a lot of money. Uh, it doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't cost any money. In fact, um, to to really transform the lives of, of people who wouldn't ordinarily have the opportunity to develop that sense of self-belief, to develop a work ethic, to develop these skills. It's a remarkable aspect of the game of chess, which I think is vastly underappreciated. And I only wish that more people would come to recognize its potential and harness it. I think it's happening, but but I agree. And I, I just hearing you rattle off the names. I mean, of course, I'm biased because I've interviewed and know several of the people you mentioned. But um, you did an excellent job curating the people that that you you chatted with. Um, uh, they they really do a great job. Um, just telling the stories of uh, of of what they see in in their daily lives uh, without um, without filter. Thank you very much. You're welcome. So. Uh, the movie is available again. You can uh, get it through the app. It's called Through the Mirror of Chess, a cultural explanation, uh, exploration, excuse me. It's uh, available either for purchase. You can get all four for $20. Is that right, Howard? That's right. So it's on the Ideas Roadshow app. It's also on Vimeo On Demand and, and will be available other places, but primarily it's on the Ideas Roadshow app. It's available for uh, all four of the films are available for combined rental of $9.99 for all four for one week or purchase for $19.99. Yeah, honestly, I mean, the amount of work you put into this, uh, I wholly support buying all four um, and buying the book as well. As you can, we kind of, um, we dipped in and out of the content covered in the book and the content covered in the movie, but uh, the, the documentaries, but I, I would just reiterate, if you enjoyed hearing Howard's opinion, you will, opinions, you will love the book. Uh, you will definitely learn a lot. He's a great writer. Um, and if you're more interested in a sort of big picture look at chess or get both while you're at it, but the book is called Chess A's and is available from Amazon and lots of other places. Uh, anything to add, Howard, before we say goodbye? It's, a, it's been a real pleasure, Ben. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you for your wonderful podcast, as I'm sure many people have uh, also expressed to you. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Howard. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Big shout out to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network, with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media, Official one on Twitter, at Perpetual Chess on Instagram, and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me, ben at perpetualchesspod.com. And of course, last but not least, I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters, those who choose to join that community based on their level of support can do things like submit questions for guests of the show, have access to live Zoom Q&A lectures with grandmasters who often have appeared on the show, going over chess games, answering questions, stuff like that. And you can even get access to ad-free perpetual chess if that's your preference. So, but most of all, thanks to everyone for listening and we will catch you all on... Podcast Network.